Welcome everybody to another session of Sessions with Flow. I am your host, Flow, and this specific episode I think is going to be my personal favorite simply because I'm going to be talking about a topic that is very, very personal to me, but also it's going to challenge narratives. That's been my podcast since the very beginning, and I will continue to do that with scientific data, with historical records, with evidence, and of course, with genealogy. So before we get into any of the details of my 23andMe results, I want to have you guys understand two things, and this is genotype and phenotype. These two things play a role in how you look physically. However, phenotype and genotype don't always agree. For example, genotype is your actual genetic makeup, your DNA, what your ancestors gave to you. Phenotype is your actual physical features. So obviously, when we look at people, we can make assumptions about them. And I'm sure you have yours about me. So let's get right into it. Not waste any time. I know a lot of these videos, these results, DNA results videos, go around the bush. I'm going to get right into it and see if my phenotype and genotype agree. Before I get into this, though, I did do this DNA test almost 10 years ago, so it's been a while. I know that some of you might have heard about it, but I wanted to get into the details of it so you can see, right? Again, and I'm going to give you historical context along with my genealogy. Okay, so when it comes to the most dominant part or genotype in my genetic makeup, for me, when I saw this, it was a shocker. It was European. And to be more specific, 56.6% of my ancestry is European. And if you go into more details, right, how much of that is Spanish? It's about 52.6%, even some Italian in there. And to give some context to that, if you uh, didn't know, the Romans conquered Spain, so that makes sense as to why there would be some Italian in the area. And of course, you have Raleigh Southern European, you have other European uh, peoples who came into this area before it was Spain, so that makes a lot of sense. Ashkenazi Jewish, that was always interesting to me to see how that is part of my DNA. And for those of you who do not know, the Ashkenazi Jewish population actually has a high percentage of people who have IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. And who has that? Of course, me, right? I don't know too many Mexicans, Rasa, who have this type of disease. And, and to me, it just explains that somebody down the line gave it to me, right? And there's also Scandinavian, right? I was pretty cool. And again, that makes sense because the northern people, or as the uh, people of Europe call them, right, the Vikings, did also make their way to Spain. So that makes a lot of sense, right? So again, that is the most dominant part of my DNA. The second most dominant part of my DNA and should come as no surprise, right, is the indigenous American. So obviously, that is, again, not a shocker. 32.8% of my DNA comes from 
Native ancestors. And of course, you know, the first indigenous peoples cross the Bering Strait bridge about 11,500 years ago to 30,000 years ago and settled all over the Americas. So this is when they first arrived, if you believe in the Bering Strait theory. Of course, there are people who will argue that Native peoples have always been here, right? Which is a possibility, but again, I like to I like to look at scientific data, and I know some of you are probably going to say, well, that's white man's data. Look, whatever we use, I mean, we have to use something, and that is that is what we use here in the States and really all of, all of the Western world. Unless there's something else that proves that they were here for a longer time or they've been here forever, then I'm going to have to go with that, right? So again, that is uh, the second largest part of my ancestry, but the difference, though, is wild. It's almost 20% more, right? A little bit more than 20%. And again, that doesn't that doesn't uh, appear, right? When you first look at me, you might think it's the other way around, more more native than European, but I'll explain to you why that's the case in a second. Again, you might be thinking, this test is wrong, and you should take it again. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you why that is the case, right? And the third largest portion is obviously sub-Saharan African, 5.4% huge drop down, right, from the first two, obviously. But even then, 5.4%, it's still a large amount for somebody from this region, right? And again, the first African slaves reached Mexico in the 1520s. So that would explain why it's not as high as somebody from, let's say, the Dominican Republic. And the earliest arrivals were strictly from the Senegambian region. And I'll, I'll explain to you why this is very important in a second. Later populations came mainly from present-day Angola. So, based off the percentages and based off the regions, I can only assume that my African ancestors probably were arrived here around the time when slaves were first being brought to the Americas. Because again, the larger population, right, I'm sorry, the, the, the population that came later came from Angola. So the early population again came from Senegambian, and that's very evident in my DNA. If you look at if you look at the DNA evidence, it shows that a large portion of that is from Sub-Saharan Africa, more specifically West Africa and these regions. Now the next part is West Asian and North African. And that's not that big, 2% again, right? But why is it even there? Well, the Moors invaded the Iberian Peninsula in 711 and controlled the region up until 1492. Ironically, the same time where Europeans began to come out of Europe and explore, right, the world or whatever. So the Moors had a big influence on the Iberian Peninsula. And the DNA is also present there, right? Again, it's not that significant, but it's enough to show up. So there's somebody in my family tree who belongs to these people. And then the last part, and which is what I talked about last week, or the last time I did the video, 
is Central and South Asian, right? And that's very, very minute, very, very small. And East Asians and South Asians were victims of the Pacific slave trade from 1565 to 1815. And of course, they came to Southern Western Mexico, which is where my family's from, and I'll talk about it in a second. So it's very possible that somebody from this region came and, you know, made contact with people on that side, and they're part of my family tree. So to me, this this was a start, right? When I first saw these results, it gave me a start to begin to look into my genealogy, into my family history, into the stuff that I already know. So first of all, regional origins. Obviously, my family is from Mexico, and more specifically, the city of Michoacan. And what makes this easier is that both of my parents are from the same state and same small town. So that just made things a lot easier for me to be able to trace things, to be able to trace family trees and pictures and whatnot. Right. But before we get into my family, I do want to talk about the history of Michoacan and how the Spanish first came into contact with the natives here, right? So Cristóbal de Olid first stepped foot into Michoacan in about 1522, following the conquest of Tenochtitlan. The Purépecha did not challenge the Spanish, and Tangashuan, the leader of the Purépecha, co-ruled with, with uh, Olid, right? So this is uh, interesting because a lot of people don't know this, that the Purépecha did not physically fight the Spanish when he first arrived. The Mexica eventually did, right? And the Chichimeca and other native groups did. But the Purépecha welcomed them. And I think a big part of that is because they were enemies of the Mexica. So again, in hindsight, you might think, well, the Purépecha were traitors or they were cowards, right? But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, as many people will say, right? So again, this is my logic, why I think they would do this, because they outnumbered them. They could have taken them out if they would have just, you know, attacked them, but they chose not to. However, that would backfire, as they would many native peoples who trusted the Spanish conquistadores. By 1530, Nino de Guzman brutally murdered Tangashuan II and became the ruler of Michoacán until he was arrested in 1536 for his heinous crimes against the natives. So what he did to him, he is he dragged him with a horse and then burned him, right? So Guzman was a very brutal conquistador and he paid for it right so a lot of people don't know this that a lot of these conquistadors faced consequences they didn't get away with oh you know i'm gonna murder a bunch of people and that's it right now if you look into the history of a lot of these a lot of these uh conquistadores the spanish crown did do something about it right not all of them obviously but i think even cortez was not rich when he died so uh, Guzman was basically jailed, I think, for about a year, and then he was back in Spain, and I wasn't allowed to come back. So the specific place where my family is from is called La Sasalca, and it was established in 1545 by the Franciscan priest Juan de San Miguel, who accompanied the army of Guzman. So there's a connection to him. That's why I wanted to mention him. However, they also established a separate in the Republic, in the jurisdiction. So this is very important because I talked about this in a separate video regarding Indian Republics. And again, if you didn't watch that video, basically an Indian Republic is a, a community of just natives and Spanish people were not allowed to live in there. So the natives were able to, to, to some extent, practice some of their cultural values or whatever. Obviously not everything, 
but they kept their languages and they lived separately from the Spanish. So this town that was founded by the priest was mainly Spaniards. Of course, people of mixed ancestry eventually, you know, were part of the, of the region, but there wasn't a specific separate native town. And I'll tell you why this is important in a second. So if you look at my ancestry timeline, you'll see a couple of things here. One is the oldest Spanish ancestor in my family tree lived between 1870 and 1780. That is not that long time ago, right? 1870 is basically a couple of generations ago. So, and why is this important? Why is this date very important? Because this is right around the time of the Porfiriato. And as I talked about in, again, another video, the first 100 years in Mexico, what happens, right? A lot of native peoples began to lose their lands. So if this is true, that means that I had Spanish ancestors who were alive in the 1870s that were not mixing. They were basically marrying other Spaniards. So that would explain why the percentage of my ancestry is that high. Again, it doesn't look like it, right, in my phenotype, but that makes a lot of sense. Now, the oldest Purepecha ancestor, because again, I'm from Michoacan, or not me, but my family, lived between 1840 and 1750. Again, going back to the Indian Republic thing that I was talking about, this would make sense. So if this is the case, that means that my native and Spanish ancestor recently married or whatever, had kids. And that is huge. Why is that huge? Because that means that my native and Spanish ancestors did not mix during the conquest. So that means that this is most, most, most likely consensual. It wasn't rape. Again, that's that's narrative here that we hear all the time. The Spanish came over and raped. Again, that didn't happen to some extent, but not for everybody. So not a lot of these marriages or, or intermixing was that. So that to me, this is very important because it goes against the narrative of you you come from rape. And it, and it's it's a beautiful thing to know that that's not the case because who wants to come from rape? Obviously, right? It's a very hurtful thing. And it also means that my oldest put up at your ancestor, you know, uh, spoke the language up until the 1840s. And that's at least right. I, that's huge to me. I, I may if I if I could trace that person and I will talk about that in a second. It's beautiful. Right. And the oldest sub-Saharan African ancestors also were alive up until the 1840s or 1720s. Again, very recent. And I'm going to show you some pictures in a second. And you, you make the judgment to see if these match, right? Again, I'm not just talking, making points for the fun of it. I'm going to show you some pictures. And then what was even more interesting, again, is the oldest Ashkenazi Jewish ancestor lived between 1810 and 1720. This is around the independence movement time. And again, that's only 200 years ago. So that would explain why I have this damn disease that I have if it's that recent, right? So let's get into the, the genealogy. You want receipts, you want proof, okay, all of this stuff doesn't matter if there's no pictures to prove what I'm talking about. So if you look here, you'll see my paternal line, you'll see my dad, you'll see my grandmother, and even my daughter, Right? Clearly, uh, I'm the darkest one in this picture. Even my daughter is lighter than I am. 
So very, very obvious that my parents or specifically my dad has way more Spanish ancestry than me and my grandmother probably more than him. So if I had to speculate, I would say that the European ancestry is more dominant in them and probably why I have more of that, right? So that doesn't mean that pure Spaniards or all they have is Spanish. I'm sure there is some native in there as well, but probably a majority of their ancestry is more European than, you know, than a native. Now let's look at my, uh, my maternal line. As you can see here, the, the phenotype is way more indigenous. All of us are around the same color. Uh, you'll see my great grandma, my grandfather, my mother, myself, and again, my daughter. But again, even my daughter's a little lighter again. It could be because of my, my dad, but also, you know, my wife is a lot lighter as well. But, you know, even her, who was on this picture, is interesting because she actually has way more native blood than I do, or at least ancestry, but her phenotype is way lighter than I am. So again, very, very interesting how that works. Now, I want to look at these pictures here, uh, again, to, to make reference or to, to, so you can see what I'm talking about. If you look at this, at this picture of my maternal great-great-grandparent, as you can see here, right? It's um, indigenous, phenotype, and possibly even African. When I saw this picture for the first time, this is about 10 years ago, you can see for sure the native in this woman's face. She was my great-great-grandmother. So very possible that she was born anywhere from the 1870s to the 1840s. And I know this because my great-grandfather was actually born in 1896. And I have records of that. And if you look at the oldest picture of me, my paternal great-grandparents, again, very European. I mean, it's, there's no denying that. It's very obvious, right? You look at these pictures and you're like, wow, I mean... Two stark differences. So to conclude this video, I want to say this. Phenotype does not always reflect genotype in human beings. So you might be looking at somebody who might make an assumption and say, well, that, that guy is a native. That guy is Spanish looking. That guy is African, right? Of course, I mean, that doesn't mean those things don't exist in that person. But I, this is why I recommend doing these tests. And more importantly, doing the research on your family. And I'll talk about why in a second. False narratives can harm the legacy of your family history. So before I did this, I was like a lot of people saying, you know, the Spaniards are rapists. The Spaniards, you know, are horrible. Again, and I'm not denying what happened in the conquest. There's no denying any of that. But to say that, I'm basically denying a big part of my family, as you can tell here. And... I mean, why would I do that? That, that's, that would be very stupid of me to, to, to say something like that, right? It just would not make sense. Genealogy backed with resources and scientific data can give you a better understanding of the history you are seeking. Again, if you don't do the family history, and all you're going to have to go is off of narratives and books you read. I would say start there. Go with your parents, great-grandparents, as far as you can go. And maybe your, you know, your DNA results will be different than mine, right? We're all different. To me, this is very important. You can't decolonize 
a colonizer, right? So I hear this this talk about decolonizing yourself and, you know, going back to your roots. Well, in my case, I mean, how can I do that if a big part of my portion is a colonizer? I mean, not just me admitting that. Again, I don't look like one, probably, right? I mean, you look at me, you will never think that, but what is there to decolonize if a big part of that is already a colonizer? So I think it's very important to think about that when you talk about decolonizing. Again, maybe you are majority native and maybe they had to move from these Indian republics into these Spanish towns to survive. I get it. If that's you, cool, right? But in my case, I have no interest in in decolonizing because, like I said, in my family history, there's a lot of colonizer in there, right? So I'm not going to deny it. Don't be fooled by ideologues who haven't resolved personal trauma. This is huge, right? A lot of people, again, have personal trauma. Maybe their parents weren't around, mom, dad, grandparents, and that plays a huge role in how they view the world. They began to read these books. They began to hang out with these people who have these narratives, these ideologies, and they want to make you think the way they think. And that's, to me, a problem because if you start doing something like that, then you're doing a disservice to the person You're doing a disservice to history, and ultimately, it doesn't help anybody. All you're doing is spewing hate, and if you're going to do that, then why would I want to be around you, right? So again, ideologues, be very, very careful with them. Lastly, anyone pushing a narrative with no resources is simply attempting to sway you to think their way, like I said. You got to have evidence. Where are your receipts? Right. If you were just going to talk a big game, but there's no evidence. Right. And there's a lot of these folks in my DMs. This is a big reason why I let go of the float page, because it was this constant. You're a colonizer. You're a vendido. You're a coconut. But look, I got the receipts. I did the history. I did the DNA test. I looked into my family. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to deny who I am? I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to apologize for that. So all of these things are very personal to everybody. And to end this, I would, I would say this. Do the work for yourself. Don't let somebody sway you. So on that note, this is Flo. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until the next one, peace out. Rising like some bomb, man, we do it in alone. Who said that we would leave? Who said that we would leave? 725, it's a flow, they'll sing. Who said that we would leave? Who said that we would leave? 725.